welcome to another episode of the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm Andrea Miller, and my guest today is a woman who's not afraid to have the hard conversations. Maisha T is an anti-racism guide, mental health activist, speaker, and entrepreneur who's passionate about women's mental wellness and empowerment. In our conversation today, Maisha shares her journey of self-discovery that started at her lowest point in life when she ended up at a mental institution, battling depression and suicidal thoughts. From there, she began the hard work of peeling back the layers of hurt in her life and realized her need to be dependent on God, not people. Fast forward, and today, Maisha has turned her pain into purpose, being used by God as a passionate advocate for mental wellness and anti-racism education. She founded the Check Your Privilege Movement, an online community and series of workshops that supports women all over the world in exploring their relationship with power, privilege, and racism. I know some of the topics we cover in this conversation may be uncomfortable, especially for my white listeners. It's hard for us to admit our part in racism, but I urge you, lean into the discomfort of our conversation. If you're a Christian and a Christ follower, pursuing justice is what following Jesus is about, and it's time we start having and listening to these hard conversations. Maisha, welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, I am just really honored to have you here. I've been following you on Instagram for quite a while, but just quietly reading and watching. And so is my 17-year-old daughter. And oh, when yeah. I told and I told you, I told her I was having you on. I didn't even know she followed you. And she's like, she thought that was pretty awesome because she's also been following you and learning. So I am just honored to have you here and to share your time with me and my audience. Wow, that's awesome. I'm so like your daughter. That's super amazing. Well, I will tell you, my daughter's the one that has opened my eyes to a lot. Honestly, she had a history teacher a couple of years ago that was incredible as far as opening, like teaching real history school and not the whitewash version that I was made aware of as her age. And she, she taught me all that she was learning and I, my eyes have just been opened and that's kind of what started it for me. So my daughter has been one of my biggest teachers in all of this from the mouth of babes. Always. I always say that our children are our greatest teachers. Absolutely. So speaking of that, my listeners know your professional bio. Can you just tell us a little bit about your personal life, where you live, who you live with, and all of that? Sure. So I'm Maisha T. Hill. Um, I say that I'm an awesome and sometimes exhausted mom of three different ability children, uh, two with high-functioning autism, one with ADHD, and all three with sensory processing disorder. We live in Oakland, California, and are very blessed to actually be in this space. Um, And all three of all of us just thriving mentally well. I also have lived experience with depression, anxiety. Um, And so just really grateful to be in this space with my family. And again, to be awesome, but also sometimes exhausted. (laughs) That that sums up mom life so very well. How How old are your kids? You have two boys and a girl, right? Yeah, Mike is 15, Malik is nine, and Naima is seven. Okay, so you've got you've got a teenager too. Mine's I have a seventeen year old and an eleven year old. Um, oh man, yeah, teenage years. There, I actually am starting to love it. It's great. I I actually haven't minded it either. I feel like it's yeah. been pretty <laughs> pretty good and easy. So, knock on wood. But yeah. So well, Maisha, let's go ahead and we'll dive into your story. There's a lot we're going to talk about today. We're going to start with your story, and then we're going to talk about the Check Your Privilege movement that you started. So before we do that. Let's just start kind of with your origin story, your childhood, and all those formative years that made you who you are, if you don't mind. Yeah. So I grew up um, in a Christian household, um, raised by my mother and her siblings and her mother, my grandmother. Um, They all 
formed me and shaped me growing up. My mom, again, was a single mom. So spending lots of times with uncle, with my uncle Brian and my aunt Felice and my aunt Rose. Um, and we did a lot of traveling between like the West coast and, um, the, the West coast and the Midwest. So, um, when I was around, I believe, uh, kindergarten age, you know, like one to four, I remember we moved to California and we lived with my uncle for a while. And then we moved back to Chicago to take care of my grandmother. So my roots have always been between the Midwest and the West Coast. Um, And so um, I just growing up in the Christian church, right? Growing up, going to Sunday school, growing up, serving the community, volunteering in the nursing homes after church, um, sending cards to those who were sick. Um, My family and my grandmother actually was the matriarch and she really instilled a lot of values around me, um, around community, um, around being of service. Um, my grandmother was amazing. Yeah. Um, my mother instilled the values of like always going for what you want, not overthinking anything. Like I just remember like even, you know, talking to my mom now, this idea that I was actually autistic, mm. right? But I've been misdiagnosed my whole life, but her knowing about my children and their testing and, and just watching them has her observing, like I was selectively mute. I didn't talk. I didn't really talk till I got to fifth grade and had a friend group mm. and I would only talk to my friend group. And so just having my mom always teaching me to speak and I found my voice through cheerleading. So my mom and my grandmother, we didn't, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. So they would create this fundraising packet and my mom would take it to work and my grandmother would take it to the church. And I feel like from sixth grade until like my junior year in high school, they fundraised for my cheerleading uniforms and cheerleading camps. Mm -hmm. And it was through cheerleading that I found my voice. And my mom just always inspired me to use my voice for good and um, use my voice to make a difference. Um, so I was always rooted, Andrea, in like community, being of service, and really using my voice to make a change. Wow. And so I know one of the things, you have several books out, but the one that tells a lot of your story is called Black, Beautiful, and Bipolar. And in that, you talk a lot about, oh, your healing process, but you say, I was the woman who let the hurt seven-year-old little girl who lived in me manipulate my relationships with men, women, and family. So yeah. you did have a hard childhood. I mean, you grew up without a father, mm-hmm. had a lot of labels. So talk just a little bit about that and how that, oh, I don't know, how that formed, how you had to realize that. And then how that made you the woman you are today. Yeah, I think a lot of us don't recognize that inner child that's wounded. Um, And, you know, through therapy, I've come to find that my inner child's still there and she's seven. Seven was the first time I experienced some sort of pain. Um, I believe that was the the last age that I did see my father. I saw him when I was older, but that's another complicated story. Yeah. But um, yeah, growing up without a father, right? I had male role models, but there was no one who was a male that was there to kind of show me like, this is how you should, like, this is how men treat men treat women or, um, and I don't want to do gender roles now because we're not living in this time anymore. But there was not that other half to help form and shape me so that I was able to kind of know, like, how do I communicate with men? How do I walk into loving relationships? How do I love myself? And so just remembering, like, this seven-year-old me um, in relationships, like, would have tantrums or, or get angry really fast because I didn't feel like I was getting enough attention or would shut down because I didn't want to communicate because my feelings were hurt. And there are so many different um, variations of this inner child wound that, you know, it stems into 
an overspill of how you show up in community connection and relationship. And so the inner child in me didn't want to be in community with folks because people always hurt you. People always leave. Right. And that was a mindset hack that I had to learn that not everybody is meant to stay in your life. Right. Up yeah. until this point. And so I do a lot of still a lot of inner child work in therapy because the inner child can still show up. And I make grace to make room for her by I've learned to self-soothe myself, have different practices in place and notice and that's with mindful meditations and um, some self-reflective practice. Notice how I can soothe my inner child so that I can thrive in my life. And I think, you know, that also subs that inner child was like the manifestation of my depression and anxiety. And I've been misdiagnosed as bipolar. Hence why that book was like that black, beautiful and bipolar with a question mark. Um, because what really, sorry, I should have included that. You're right. The question, oh, the question mark. That okay, makes a difference. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I've been misdiagnosed a couple of times. Um, and that's one, like recognizing my inner child and the manifestation of that in my body and in my relationships. Um, two, it was, you know, a lot of doctors never thought about how post-traumatic stress disorder or the epigenetic disposition of what's called post-traumatic slave disorder or syndrome yeah, yeah. is really rooted in my DNA. And just like any environmental trauma that I saw growing up, it always goes to a personality disorder. Um, and so I, I remember the psychiatrist who did like a, my very last assessment was like, well, tell me about yourself. Why do you think that this is your diagnosis? And I'm like, I don't. It's the label that they gave me. Mm. And I told him I'm a single mom. <laughs> I have three kids. They all have therapy. I have therapy. I have a job. I go to school. Like there was a list of like 10 things yeah it was like yeah that's more depression and anxiety you are one person caring for four people of mm -hmm. course you're going to get down of course you're going to be anxious of course you're going to be in fight or flight often because that's really not healthy to take right. on all of that and still try to you know live your best life and you really like this is something that i being a white woman not as aware of that you talk about is that you had to, like you said, three kids, single mom, but you really were, had to, felt like you had to carry on that strong, independent black woman label. And yeah. you could only do it for so long because then you did hit a bottom. Mm -hmm. And just when you talk in your book that you shared just about the labels that you had to, oh, I don't know, fight society against the baby mama, the big black girl, all of those things. And it's, again, yeah. it's like that just opened my eyes to just a different plight that you had. And the whole mental illness one is not one that I realized was so hard for black women to be able to, to be allowed to have and to mm -hmm. have that. So you did, like I said, you did hit a low point that you were put in a mental hospital, but that was really, it's from reading your book. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. It sounded like that was really kind of a changing point for you that you really did start that healing and realize your codependency in that. Absolutely. So can you share just a little bit of that? And you also God really became somebody that you realized you needed to be dependent on during that time. So do you mind sharing just a little bit about that stay in the mental hospital and what, how that changed you? Yeah. Yeah. So my daughter was, um, seven days old, I believe. Or 12 yeah, old. That's, yeah. It was Thanksgiving of 2012 when I ended up in the mental health institution. Um, and when I got there, the first thing that I saw was a Bible. And for some reason, I just said, God has me here for a reason. Wow. Um, and I walked around with this Bible. My pastors came and visited me. And I was just like, one day I'm going to start something for women of color to talk about their mental health. Because if I had someone to talk to, like a safe circle, I would probably not be where I am right now. Pretty yeah. sure they thought I was medicated. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but that was really the turning point for me because I walked around with that same Bible I saw when I got there. I got out. I got in community. I got a connection. But if I were to go back and rewrite that story, that book, I kept having depressive episodes. 
Mm-hmm. So um, I did get out and I did have a couple of relapse. One relapse, Andrea, was my brother called me and he said, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm getting ready to take a bottle of pills. And he was like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, I don't know. I think I should just take the pills. He ended up calling the sheriff's department. The, cap- the, the captain of the sheriff's department came to my house. Um, he looked at me and he said, you know, I'm actually supposed to take you away back to the mental health institution and take your children. Um, and he said, but there's something about you, right? <laughs> he said... There is something about you. I cannot do that. Give me the pills. I'll wait for your mom to get here. And then promise me you'll never do this again. Wow. That was a God moment. Yeah. You're telling me that a police officer didn't take me away when he's actually supposed to do that? Uh Uh-huh. God in that story. And so we fought four or three months later. I'm in another depressive episode. My mom's like, okay, you have a choice. Give me your kids and go find your life or figure something out. Um, And I grew up in Concord, California. And I remember that this was the last place that I experienced some peace and happiness. And so I took my last paycheck, bought a one-way train ticket to Emeryville, stayed with my cousin. Um, I got here, had a full-time job in four days, got my family here. We had our own apartment like in three months. And God has been the leader of this story ever since. Now. Fast forward seven years later, I now um, work at a church where I serve as a deacon and serve as the communications coordinator. I also am the founder of Brown Sisters Speak. We are a mental health empowerment and peer support organization for women of color, currently giving out therapy scholarships for women of color in California and New York City. And I lead the Check Your Privilege Movement. And how God is in all of these initiatives that you hear me talking about is that I have learned now through my mental health experience to take all of my pain, to pray about it and, and, and move it into power. Wow. It's, it's that mental health story. Okay, Black women, like you said a few minutes ago, we are not allowed to be seen as human. We are not allowed to have emotions. Okay, how do I create space for Black women to, Black, Brown, Indigenous, Asian Pacific Islander, Southeast Asian women to speak their truth? The easiest way to do that was sister circles and then therapy stipends. Um, and with Check Your Privilege, which I know we're going to talk about, it was, okay, my friend, this woman who was my friend, she hurt me. How do I make sure that, number one, other women of color aren't hurt? And number two, that we don't throw away white women that we repair relationships consciously. And it was check your privilege. It's the double entendre of that meaning. And so that's how God works in my life. Yeah, I love that story. I mean, it really is. And I think in that book, you you recognize you are a vessel for God and that Mm -hmm. you could be used by him and you have been and he's used your story and all of that. Yeah. And it's, I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it because now looking at the influencer that you are and the anti-racism work that you're doing is just a huge step for God and justice. And that's what, Mm -hmm. and that's what Jesus is about. And that's why we should care. And I know I have a lot of white listeners and mm-hmm. I want them to realize this is if you're a Christian, justice is the work of Jesus and this is important stuff. And that's why I want to dive into the check your privilege movement that you started. And going back a little bit, one of the quotes I wrote down that I read somewhere, you said your mental health had been impacted by unconscious bias and privilege. And that's kind of what made you want to kind of the impotence to start the check your privilege movement. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It was an argument with a really, um, I would say she was just like a sister to me. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So talk a little bit about that. Like just, you don't have to tell me the details of the argument at all, but just like yeah. how that just spurred you to like, this is a movement that we need to start and the interviews that you did and all of that. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we had a, you know, a TIFF. And um, in that TIFF, I looked at the labels of privilege that she had, my relationship with anti-Blackness, why I always centered white women in my life versus women of color. Um, it was through the work of like Catrice and Jackson that I learned about, about the weapons of whiteness. Um, and really what I was experiencing was actually like a narcissist and codependent relationship um, that I was ent entangled with, with white women. But my idea was, this is really painful. Um, I want to move through this and not just throw folks away. Um, and so I remember talking to my coach at that time and she's like, well, how are you going to own your power? And I said, I gave her a list. We sat on the phone. If I, I have the email of the notes of the list we made of what I'll do. And I was like, well, I can interview white women about their relationship with privilege to make sure they're not causing mental and emotional harm to other women of color. I said, I could write a book. I told her I could have a group coaching program. Yeah. And you did it all. <sighs> yep. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, I know. I mean, that is something to really <clears throat> feel, feel your emotions with and how God has used you. And you did all of those things that yeah. God had planned for you. And that is a lot to just be... Yeah. <laughs> to, to, I don't know, be proud of yourself and to own that. Yeah. Because you did and, it all. And um, it's, it's so interesting. I'm still doing it. And um, it was really like, really helped like letting white women know like, yeah, your privilege and your bias is getting in the way to be in conscious relationship. Yeah. Um, to really re not, not reconcile. I don't, I don't really talk about reconciliation, but there needs to be like a relational repair and deep seated friendships for this work to work. Yeah. And that is what I think not sets you apart from everybody, but it definitely sets you apart a little bit because you really have that focus. Like you said, I don't want to throw white women away. We mess up. And I, that's why I was a little more comfortable interviewing you because I'm like, okay, she'll offer me some forgiveness if I mess up. I'm mm -hmm. learning. And I think that's what it's about because there's so many things. So you're, you did the interview and then your book too does share other women's experiences. And like one of them talks about the ghosting that white women want to do because this, yeah. is this is uncomfortable work. Like even like mm -hmm. I told you, listening to one of your podcasts this morning, that was uncomfortable. But knowing that like we can have like a little room to make mistakes as we're learning is, and not that we need, uh, again, I don't want to put this on like you have to give us your sympathy for this, but just knowing that there's that room for you to teach yeah. and us to make mistakes and move forward and ask for forgiveness with those. So yeah. can you talk a little bit, now we're talking about this whole cancel culture. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because it's really fascinating how it does relate to like white supremacy, all these things I had never thought about. And I'm like, mm -hmm. wow, that is powerful. So if, do you mind just talking a little bit about that? Yeah, um, it's basically the notion of, I mean, it's part of white patriarchy. It, it, if something has no value of to you anymore, you just dispose of it and throw it away. We see it happening in corporate America all the time. You're easily disposable at work, especially if you're a woman. Um, and so I often tell folks the way that powerful white men treat white women is the way that white women treat women of color. Um, say that again, because I heard you say that somewhere else and I like rewound it and I'm like, that is, and I've heard Lisa yes. Sean Harper talk a lot about that lately too. And I'm like, okay, why was I never aware of this? Like, it's so true. Yeah. So say it it's, again. It's a relational dynamic. So the way that a powerful white man treats a white woman, woman in a corporate setting is the way that that same white woman will go and treat women of color. And wow. so it looks like gaslighting folks and that's gaslighting you in a silence that's that narcissistic codependent relationship um where the man assumes authority and only sees value in you when you kind of support what he wants um or kind of takes your ideas and run with it 
that happens to women of color through white women because it's the cycle of abuse that's happening. And no one's really saying anything about that. Yeah, that's, I mean, I'm still just like letting that soak in because that's so powerful and what white women need to hear because I can be guilty of thinking like, well, I don't know what I did, you know? And and honestly, it's more that I've started to realize and pick apart the patriarchy in our culture and church and, and dive more into feminism that I've become aware of like, oh wait, this has like deeper roots than just being a Jesus feminist or whatever. Like it is, this is so related to this. And we'll talk about that. Sorry, I'm all over the place because there's so many things. But your most recent podcast uh, about Rachel Hollis, the Co-Conspired Conversation podcast, and you really dive into the Rachel Hollis episode. I don't know what you call that. Rachel, what do you want to call? I think it was like, girl, apologize. I don't even know. Yes, yes. Let's just put it out there. Uh, But you share so much in that and about this whole white women dynamic with the power over black women and one of the women you have on your show talks about the history of like white women like that was their only power they could buy and sell slave mm-hmm. and like where all this start like I had I'm embarrassed to say I had no idea and that just really all of this is making just it's yeah. making me realize how much work and how deep these roots run in us and even this morning like I'm just gonna be honest with you I was thinking like well I still don't know what I did like I didn't like I'm and it's like those are my ancestors and would I have been any different at that time I don't know and it's just there's so much work to be done Um, and we will put the link to that episode because it was it was powerful and you guys talk about a lot because I know I I don't I don't follow Rachel Hollis. I had some issues with her when her first book came out a few years ago. And, but I could, I know a lot of my white friends probably were like, well, what was the big deal? And it's like, it is a big deal. It's a big deal. It really is. And I couldn't believe when you talked about, because she was showing up all over my feed that I remember those days after. And I was like, I don't follow her. Why, why is she all over my stuff? Yeah. She, she, in her Facebook um, ads manager, I I used to, (sighs) manager I used to do marketing um she targeted the page check your privilege and she targeted the page my T. so even following me on Instagram or Facebook wherever you saw her ads and I'm making sure to like tell enough people about this and have it in written record so that when I do go to Facebook in a couple weeks I can have this conversation on predatory this is predatory now yeah what we're talking about with white women and um feeling that they can abuse their power over women of color And I'm going to keep speaking out against Rachel Hollis because it's a sin. What she's doing is a sin. And I will not stop until she has a genuine apology and and leans into the discomfort of taking her anti-racism journey. And now I see it. My eyes are open more because it would be easy. Like a lot of white women have just looked at like, what'd she do? She apologized. Like, no, it's so much deeper. And this, Mm -hmm. like you just said, that awareness, like she's using her power over you to like plaster your followers ads with her stuff. Like that. And that goes back to, again, this culture of white supremacy and white women, Mm -hmm. the power that they have over black women are the same as the men, white men that have over them. So that episode is a must listen and your eyes will be open to a lot of things, but it's going to be an uncomfortable episode for white women to listen to. And the whole white fragility and all of that is going to come into play. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, it is. I like, I honestly, I saw that coming up in me, but that's why it's important to like be aware of these things. Mm -hmm. So you can Mm -hmm. lean into that discomfort. So talk a little bit about the whole ghosting thing, because we're going to tell, I'm going to have you tell about how women that white women that want to start doing this work 
can get involved and where to start. But one of the things you talk about is ghosting and like I said, the discomforts and all that. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so I have like this, this circle, this cycle that I tell my coaching students in, uh, about called the co-conspirators journey. And so it's like you listen and you learn and you take action and then you fail. When you feel like you're failing in this work, when you get started, the shame, spi- the shame spiral starts. And then you want to kind of like, you get that aversion, that discomfort about what you're feeling and you totally just disappear. It's, it's, so the word ghosting comes from um, the dating world, right? Where you yes. meet someone, you guys hit it off, and then you never hear from them again. Well, that's what happens in the in anti-racism work is that folks will start the journey. They'll read something, see something, or hear something that feels like an attack, a personal attack. So they'll personalize the experience. And then they will avert or ghost the, ghost the process, literally. Just yeah. disappear and not yeah. back up. Yeah. And that's something you see that's common. Like we could think, oh no, Absolutely. you wouldn't do that. But you have a, a, one of the authors in your book talks about, was it Brittany? I'm trying to remember. Brittany, yeah. Yeah, she shared honestly about her experience with that. And if we're being honest, it's very tempting. I mean, I've seen it in myself, just starting to speak out a little bit and getting some comments that I'm like, oh my gosh, it would be easier not to engage. But that is how white supremacy continues, right? Yep, that's how it, that's how it keeps going. I just think there's so many things for women, white women to be aware of when they dive into this work. And that's why your book, Check Your Privilege, is a book that women need, we need to get and read. So tell us a little bit about that project. Like I said, you have the, the podcast and you have the book that just came out called Check Your Privilege. Can you tell us just a little bit about your book and your goal with that? Because it's not just written by you. Yeah, yeah. So again, it was this idea of storytelling changes lives. So yeah. what would it look like to kind of create a field guide for women on their journey, Black women and white women who are in this first book of what, was it, what it means to really live into the experience of the work? And so I reached out to, at the time, I didn't know Jen Kinney that well or Heather Anderson that well, yeah. but I saw that they had a heart for justice. And so I reached out and it was simply like, hey, I'm working on this book and we're just going to put it out into the universe and hope it changes lives. And it's really, it was picked up by Dirt Path Publishing because it was published in the fall before. And we signed with a publishing company who actually rewrote, we had to like rewrite all of our stories Hmm. um, because she really wanted to create a thorough line of this journey and connecting the stories all throughout the book from the start to the finish. Um, And so it was the idea of what does it mean to live into the work? What does it mean to break down the processes of that? And so for Brittany, it was on ghosting. For Brandy, who was a Black woman, it was her experience as an educator, but knowing that she's unapologetically a Black woman. For Jen Kenny, it was about getting proximate, but her story is a little deeper because it's not like she, you know, if you read her story, it's like, I came in thinking I'm a white savior, but it wasn't about that. For uh, Heather Anderson, it was about being in community, right? How to fix a community that caused harm. Um, For Jay Blanco, it was nobody wants to be a white savior. Um, She does mission work here in Oakland and she serves black families. Her organization is for black families. Um, And she's also a Christian woman. Her chapter is amazing. If you are a follower of Christ and kind of struggle with this, what's a white savior? I don't know what this means. Andrea, we really wanted to create a set of stories that would show that you are not alone and that you can connect to someone's story to take the first step in your journey. Yeah, and I think reading, and you definitely set out to do that and you did. And I think anyone just looking to start this work, that's a, there's so many great places to start. I mean, there really are. I just, I'm just 
diving into the book, Me and White Supremacy. I mean, there's so many books out there, but yours is such a great one. Like you said, living into this work and what that looks yeah. like. Mm -hmm. And I know that is a big, it's a mission of yours. That This is just not like check off your list. This is living into the work. So can you dive yeah. a little bit deeper into that? Like what that means for you and for others, like actually living into this? Yeah. So, you know, the premise, you know, for a while from all of us, the educators was to do the work. Yeah. Um, and I started thinking about, you know, how doing, um, I talked about productivity on my last Instagram live, um, how doing feeds into that productivity lie that your value is only based in how much you can accomplish. And so if we're really trying to dismantle our personal relationships with um, imperial capitalist white supremacy patriarchy, as Bell Hooks calls it, then we really need to look at our own journey. And so what that means is we're not going to make this just a checklist. Oh, I read someone's book. Oh, yeah. To a workshop. We're not going to do think about this as doing. It's more of an embodying. So how do you embody the mindset of an anti-racist? How do you embody your relationship with bias? So once you can take and pick apart a concept for yourself and really like feel it in your heart, in your soul, in your spirit, then you need to take that concept and work with your family. And then from your family, talk to your friends. And then from your friends, impact community. Because what tends to happen is we look at, we look at you know, doing the work as a whole collective, right? Which is we all have to do that. But for me, it was, this is your journey. You have to start with yourself first. Um, and that requires the unpacking to then live into the experience of doing the work. That's so good. And it's, I think it's just so powerful because it goes back to, this is not a checkoff list of, mm -hmm. of just getting it off your list and being done. Like this is, like you just said, living into this and that's powerful. And you give people a lot of good places to start and continue living into this. And I know there's a lot going on right now with um, Ahmaud Arbery and now Breonna Taylor, like a lot of white people are wanting to, and myself included, like, and it's embarrassing to say, but I think with social media now, like we're becoming more aware of, wow, this happens. And you have known that, you and other black people have known that forever that this goes on. And, I, I know white people that want to get into this work. And I saw Austin Channing's post yesterday about quit asking, quit, quit mm -hmm. DMing her and asking people what to do. Like resources are out there and they are. Yeah. And I think that's something that white people need to be aware of. Quit asking black people what to do. The resources are out there. And there are like you are an educator and you have the you have the resources there that we can pay and learn from. So tell us a little bit about your resources that you have. And of course, we'll put links to your website and every the classes and all of that. But can you just tell us about what you have and good starting places and all of that? Yeah. So I start with, you know, hanging out on social media, watching the Fitla lives. Um, you grab, grab a copy of the book. You can join the Co-Conspirators Lounge. It's a five dollar a month membership space where you get a, a monthly masterclass and check-ins. And, and tell me a little bit more. I actually joined that lounge this morning because I, 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 this looks like I was, I looked at your website. And I'm like, I don't really know where to start, but the lounge looked like a good place to start. So I joined that this morning and tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah. So the lounge is um, a community-based space because I know that, I believe that the work requires community and connection. Yes. Um, you come in and once we, we've changed the way that it works, but I'll explain how it works right now. Okay. Um, you get a live masterclass. So you can just join me on the first Sunday of the month for a 90 minute masterclass. Um, this month was Rest as Resistance and it was led by Tina Strawn. Um, after the masterclass, you get a Monday, you get a journaling prompt. So we have a journaling prompt for the month. And then you get two check-in calls. So one call is to set a goal. And the second call is to follow up on the goal you set for yourself for the month. Wow. Okay. Um, and then um, there's one more activity in the month, which is an expressive activity 
especially okay. music, expressive dance, because it's taking you from actually writing and journaling to kind of moving the energy out of your body so okay. that you can move into the next month. So that's okay. how the Book Inspirers Lounge works. Okay. And so, like I said, I joined that this morning, so I'll start that work, and that is a great starting place to start living this and not just checking it off the list. And then on your website, you have, tell us about the Saturday classes, because I'm curious about that and exactly yeah, what those so are. Yeah, so Saturday school is my, um, it's an eight-week group coaching program. It's actually moving to 12 weeks. It's a 12-week okay. coaching program where we unpack um, like in the fall, we're work, really working on decolonization. Um, and so we unpack your, your decolonizing process over 12 weeks. Um, you get with a cohort of 15 women, you'll have a peer mentor, um, and you'll have me. And we'll work through your relationship with decolonization. Um, and so that is a group program of 15 women. You are a cohort. Um, and that's the second level of a way to work with me. Okay, so that is considered like a second level. So when does the next mm -hmm. session of that start? That starts, it's in August. We don't have the official date set yet. Okay, but in August, so that's something to keep mm -hmm. on the radar, that that starts in August, and all the information on that is on your website. So that's a good second place. And then I know you also offer some lunch and learns and different videos. you want to talk to us yeah. or Yeah, tell us a little bit more yeah. about that. Um, and well, there's actually, so you get the Co-Conspirators Lounge, you get Saturday School, and then there's this third level. Um, then I'll get into the lunch and learns. Um, okay. Next, I'm launching a six-month group coaching program. So where Saturday school is three months, this next program is six months. It launches in June. Um, and it's really on like your anti-racist mindset, critical race theory. It gives you the foundations to begin your journey over the next six months. Group coaching calls. It's, it's absolutely wonderful. So that event will be available on the website on Monday. The information. Okay. Wow, that's awesome. So tell us while you're talking about that, and then we'll come back to the lunch and learns. So tell us the website. So you're saying all of this is on your website. Yeah, tell me the name of it checkyourprivilege.co. Okay. And we will put, of course, a link to that because it's .co, not com. I learned that myself. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we'll be sure to put a link to that. And then the next level is the Lunch and Learns, right? Um, yeah. And the Lunch and Learns are actually, if we were to go back a little bit further before the lounge, I should have mentioned. Oh, they are. Okay. Instagram that's account. a basic step. Okay. That's yeah, good yeah. to know. The Instagram account, you can always find at between 11 a.m., typically noon Pacific Standard Time, a lunch and learn. Oh, okay. Uh, learns are either with myself, they're either with Letty of the Sincerely Letty podcast, so that'd be his, a history lesson, okay. or they'll be with we, um, Louisa Duran. She's at According to Wees. Okay. She's the sociologist of my crew. Um, and so once a week, Monday through Friday, one of us will pop on and do these live lunch and learns to kind of give you guys basic fundamentals and understanding um, on the history, the sociology, um, I'm bringing in theology um, around anti-racism work. That's a little bit like the Rachel Hollis episode where you guys were all on talking about those aspects. So yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. So you have those experts and yourself on every day, 11 to noon on Instagram. So where can people follow you on Instagram to find that out? Yeah, I'm on Check Your Privilege and it's spelled C-K at C-K Your Privilege. Okay. And is there anything else that we missed? Did I cover all of it that you offer? Because it's a lot. Um, yes, that's everything. And it's all going to be streamlined on the website um, by the time this podcast airs. <laughs> okay. And so, and then you like I, the website and choose your own adventure. Okay. And so, like I said, but also you have a podcast called, the, is it Co-Conspired Conversation Podcast that yep. is a great one. 
that huh, it's a must listen, especially the last episode. I've only listened to, I think I listened to three episodes, but the last one was pretty powerful about yeah. Rachel Hollis's need to apologize. So we will put links to all of those things. Maisha, is there anything else that you, you, you want to share that I didn't ask or that you feel is important to share? Um, let me see. That's kind of a big, broad question. You're like, where do I, where do I start? I know. Um, no, I think, you know, your audience is predominantly Christian women. I guess what I would ask for the Christian women that are listening is for them to really interrogate their relationship with racism. Mm. Um, because we know that Jesus is, is, is <laughs> we know that Jesus is for justice. Um, and so where do you see Jesus? Where do you see the justice in your life? Where do you see yourself modeling the justice of Jesus in your life? That's a question for reflection. Um, because when you can interrogate where you see the justice of Jesus in your life, um, then you can actually lean into the discomfort of doing the work to have a justice framework on community building and relationships in a Christian context. Mm. I'm so glad you added that because that is, that is the truth. And what it comes down to, if we're Jesus followers, Christians, that's, that's why, like, it's easy to leave and be, not be uncomfortable, mm-hmm. but but because of our love for Jesus and our neighbor and justice, we can't just do that. Right. So. And we often get this, you know, reconciliation is great, um, but reconciliation denies my experience as a black woman in a Christian yeah. time because it says, oh, well, Jesus died on the cross for that and it's reconciled and it's over. No, it's not over yet. Sorry, friends. When you say reconciliation for me, that's I'm denying your humanity. I'm gaslighting you. And I don't want to have this conversation with you around race because it's uncomfortable. Yeah, that's important too. That is important. Yeah. So, so we have the resources. Yeah. White friends quit asking what to do or where to go because this is a great, great starting place. We will link up your website, where to find you on Instagram, and people can get started to living into this work. I just thank you for mm-hmm. all you've done. I mean, you've poured your heart and soul and life into this work, and I just, I thank you for all of it. And I'm, I don't wanna, I'm looking forward to learning from you. Thank you so much, I appreciate it. Thanks for listening in on this conversation. I hope it's encouraged you to start living into your own work of dismantling racism and taking an honest look at it in your own life. The resources with Check Your Privilege are one of the best starting places to start your journey. As always, the links to the classes, books, and all things I talked about with Maisha are listed on the episode show notes at herstoryspeaks.com. I also put a link to the Rachel Hollis episode that Maisha and I talked about. Also, this is an episode I encourage you to share with a friend. And if you haven't left a review on iTunes for the Her Story Speaks podcast, I'd love it if you would. That helps others more easily find the podcast.